I'm a passionate believer that you can't create a culture, you can create an environment in which the culture will flourish. And then the actions, every single thing that you do helps to shape and create exactly what you're doing, how you're doing it, and ultimately the way that the culture springs up. So the things that you reward, the behaviors that you think are okay, the ones that you condone and say, no, you can't do that, or that's not the right thing to do, every action ultimately leads to the culture that you create. That was iTech Media Chief Operating Officer Alan Cairns on the importance and the role of culture in their business. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. Alan is a HR executive who transitioned into a COO role, and we're going to talk about his career path and what he does now after a brief word from our sponsor. Redefining HR, one podcast at a time. Support for the Redefining HR podcast comes from PIN. PIN is building the world's first employee-centric communications tool, enabling your employees to automatically receive helpful messages at key moments throughout their journey, from onboarding to promotions and everywhere in between. PIN helps companies battle communication overload and puts your employees in control over when and how they receive information. Go to PINHQ.com for more information. That's P-Y-N-H-Q.com. And reinvent employee communications for the distributed workplace. And now, on to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Redefining HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt. And today, I am really excited to be joined by the Chief Operating Officer for iTech Media, Alan Cairns. Alan has a deep background, actually as an HR operator and an HR executive before moving into that COO role. And that was one of, uh, one of many reasons I wanted to have him on the podcast. Uh, I've worked with Alan in the past. We know each other. I'm familiar with his work. So uh, we have that relationship. And I'm a big fan of his approach to all things people and business. So Alan, uh, why don't you start off by just giving the listeners a brief introduction and background on you? Sure. Firstly, delighted to be here today, Lars, and um, loving your work, genuinely loving your work. You know, an amazing book, which um, has just so much knowledge and experience to share with the kind of the people community. So my background, firstly, worth stating, I'm as old as the hills, so it would take <laughs> a long time to cover everything. So if we take the last, I don't know, 12 years, I spent eight glorious years with Money Supermarket, a UK price comparison site. It had just IPO'd. And over those eight years, we grew the share price roughly 11x and hired a lot of talented people. And legacy-wise, at least a dozen of those individuals are now CEOs of different businesses and probably another dozen have started up their own businesses. So it was a great talent pool. Yeah. From there, I went on to Moo.com. Moo VC backed three different VCs on the board. Amazing business, very creative, makes um, business cards, postcards and so on. And loved my time there. Again, brought in some great people, learned an awful lot in particular about being part of a VC-backed business and the difference because Money Supermarket was a PLC. And then from there, I went on to 
two businesses. I joined two companies in parallel and it needed quite a bit of setting up to be able to do this. So I joined, this one's quite a mouthful. I joined a startup systematic hedge fund, which had a single investor who was a Russian oligarch, no names, obviously. And <laughs> he seed funded $1.8 billion into this particular hedge fund. And like anyone putting a large amount of money into a hedge fund was looking for a double digit return. So you can imagine that that was a very, very performance driven um, organization. When I joined, there were 15 people in the company and I'll explain more about leaving um, prematurely. But when I left, we had, I think, 23, 24 people and it was about hiring the best quants in the world. Yeah. In parallel, I joined Octopus Ventures, so a VC, and there I was a venture partner helping a range of startups that Octopus had invested in to scale up more quickly. So anything from our co-founders have fallen out, what's the best way to try and resolve that, through to when's the right time to hire a VP people, a chief people officer, when should we have a finance function, how do you put OKRs in place, and so on. And I was doing those two roles in parallel, beautiful symbiosis between the two. And I got a reach out from Harley, who's the founder of iTech Media, where I am today. And he pitched the company in such a way and explained the opportunity ahead in such a way that I was just hooked really from first conversation. Fast forward to today, I joined as employee number 66, we're 260 people today. And that's over the last, what, two and a quarter years. And it's easily been the best gig of my life. Yeah, well, I, uh, I appreciate the overview and I wanna dig into uh, that actually in, in a couple different sections. Um, you know, starting off, I know obviously you, you've you walked through your role as an HR operator, an HR executive, and you walked through that shift. And I want to start there. Like, what was it, when did you know that it was time for you to do something different after you had been kind of in that that CPO, CHRO seat uh, for, for uh, you know, a couple different roles in, in consecutive projects? And then, you know, what was the, what was the kind of inflection point for you when you're like, you know what, I think it's time to try something new. So I, I look at the role I have today as the culmination of everything I've ever done so far. This is the 13th, yep, 13th gig that I've had. I don't believe in superstition, by the way. And um, <laughs> if you go right, right the way back, I've had a few operational roles before for long periods of time. So a number of years ago, I was at JCB, so construction equipment. And I spent five years with the company and two and a half of those was completely outside of HR running what was a production facility of about 500 people. So I've always had this, I suppose, yearning to be involved in the operations of a business. And then in most of the companies that I've been in, I've tried to get hold of something additional to HR. So that might be in Money Supermarket, it was um, helping to steer the contact center. In the hedge fund, it was more about how 
the hedge fund operates and the way that we meet and the structure of it and so on. So you get lots of opportunities to do things outside. And this role ultimately represents probably more like a leapfrogging of an HR role into something more operational than into a kind of hybrid of the two, ultimately into something that's a fully fledged COO role. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, uh, you know, the, the, the transition to your role now kind of came through, you mentioned the hedge fund and your role at Octopus Ventures. You know, I'm curious, like from, from your background as, as an operator, as an HR executive, like when you went to Octopus, were they looking for somebody from that talent background? And that, that kind of was what what you know helped you kind of catch their attention because lots of times you know the, the VC space can be somewhat insular you know people kind of moving up through the the partner track and so bringing somebody with your seasoned background as an HR executive in was it was it purely kind of a talent role within the portfolio or was there an investing component I'd love to learn a little bit more about that because I know a lot of people in our space are um, you know with the amount of um, of, of traction and traffic right now in the VC world. Like lots of those organizations are hiring heads of talent. And I know those are not easy jobs by any means, but you're, you're kind of, uh, you know, magnifying your scope over an entire portfolio. So what was that, what was that initial transition like for you? And then as somebody who had been, I guess, part two of that, you know, somebody who, who had been focused on singular companies and now you're in a VC environment where you're kind of looking after and advising a portfolio of founders what was that transition like for you? Well, firstly, it was prescient of Octopus to hire someone with this skill set. And I think they were specifically looking for that. It's worth stating, I was doing two roles at the same time. Yeah. So in Octopus, I was five days a month. Now, in five days a month, you can't hire every single person for every portfolio company. It's impossible to be able to do. So it was less a talent role and more a advice on people related things is probably the easiest way to describe it. And Octopus had actually a really good setup where they had a, a finance specialist who'd been a former CFO of various businesses, me as the kind of people specialist. And then they had a number of people that had had, it could be a sales role or a general operations role before, and they'd done that in other businesses. So between us all, we would help to shape um, a particular company. We'd give advice, ultimately down to the CEO and the team, whether or not to accept that advice. But what I found most useful is the the problems experienced by many startups are pretty similar. So what you start to develop, a bit like a a school teacher doing their first year of, of teaching, it's probably really, really hard to do. And the second year, if it continued in the same way, would be easier because you'll have done a lot of the groundwork. So it was a little bit like that, that a lot of work up front because a lot of new situations that you hadn't done before. But ultimately, it was flipped into running, it sounds a bit grand, but running masterclasses, where it would be a a breakfast event for 20, 30, 40, 50 CEOs, um, senior teams. And you would talk about a particular topic. So one I ran was on compensation in startups. 
Another one was how to set up from scratch a talent acquisition team and whether to use a headhunter, whether to use a, an RPO, whether to use an internal recruiter. And things like that were almost what I describe as teaching people to fish. It was helping lots of people at the same time without doing it for them. Got it. Yeah, that uh, I like that masterclass analogy because I think that'll certainly be um, you know relatable for a lot of uh, for a lot of listeners. Um, you mentioned your you know your so your role now your COO with iTech Media. You, you mentioned uh, this is the, the the kind of what you you feel you were meant to do and and the best role for you. So for listeners that that aren't familiar with iTech Media, um, I'd love to learn more about just you know the the business and the operations and then kind of through that what drew you to them. What was it about? you know, Harley's outreach and, and pitch that compelled you to join? Sure. So first and foremost, we build websites. We build websites for the gaming industry. Gaming, I mean gambling. And the industry that we are in were essentially disintermediating a market, rather like a money supermarket or a competitor market, where, like a concierge would, we're helping people to find the way in what is a complex and complicated um, array of businesses, really. And why, why was I attracted? Firstly, this is a bootstrap business. So it's having worked in a VC-backed business, having worked in a PLC before, it's refreshing to think that genuinely you can do absolutely anything you want you know if we wanted to make not that we will yellow rubber ducks tomorrow we could do <laughs> i hear the yellow rubber duck market is uh, is booming right now so that uh, you know i would i wouldn't take that off the table i i think maybe it's commoditized <laughs> i don't know but we we could have some kind of um, how about nft that. rubber ducks but that's uh that's that's an emerging space now now you now you're talking yes um so if you, if you look at it that way, the fact that we're bootstrapped and the fact that the business has been profitable from day one means that you can make a lot more choices. That's the, that's the first thing. When I joined, I was the uh, employee number 66, and today we're 200 and close to 260. So it's the opportunity to scale a business from less than 100 people to more than 1,000 which is our ambition to be well over a thousand people. So that part is super exciting because as I'm sure everyone will appreciate, it will be a world of unicorns and rainbows and fluffy clouds. Nothing will go wrong. It will just be a dead straight line to well over a thousand people. I mean, that's bullshit, <laughs> of course, but um, in, in truth, it's, it's going to be hard but it's going to be so exciting. And that's the bit that really hooked me. It's the excitement of being able to do that. I talked earlier about this being the culmination of everything I've ever done. And genuinely, it's if you think kind of Malcolm Gladwell style, this is thin slicing everything I've ever done yeah. before. It's that way of thinking about everything that I've ever experienced and then melding that together into say, and therefore, what's the best example of this? What's the best way that we could do this? It's also the business that I can bring more of my authentic self to work than probably anywhere else that I've ever been. I laugh every single yeah. day here without fail. And that's a pretty special thing that's hard to quantify, 
but you get a sense of how that works. To tell you a funny story about Harley, um, he pitched to me, we're building the money supermarket of gaming. And I thought, that's just a cheesy line. You know that I've worked for money supermarket before. Um, I don't get it. But when he explained it, I really started to, um, to get it. We met, we met up and he told me about the business. We had dinner together and we both, I think it, it translated that we were both real foodies. And although it might sound a bit strange for our first um, dinner together with your future boss, there was a particular um, meal, I think it was um, a it might have been pasta with truffle or something like that, but it appealed to us both and we decided to share that. And I think that just quirky little things like that, you know that this is someone that you are going to enjoy working with and that you've both got a similar mindset as well of like, well, if we want to share something, I know we hardly know each other, but let's just do that. So it's little things like that. And then what I've seen and experienced over the last two and a quarter years is Harley is easily one of the most humble people, CEOs, founders that I've ever worked with. And that makes a huge difference because he, without trying to be sycophantic at all, but he knows what he's good at. He knows what he's not good at. He's open to listening to different ways of doing things. He's open to let's bring someone in that's an expert in that. And a lot of founders, and it's probably what makes them the people that they are, have a chip on their shoulder in some way, in a good way, yeah. about something. You know, I want to be better than this group of people. I want to be better than this person. I want my business to be bigger than this particular business. They've got something like that. Harley's driver is different to that. And that's, I think it's the combination of those things that really attracted me. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying the show. I wanna take a brief break to share a new initiative that I think you'll find helpful. Redefining HR started with this podcast and evolved into a best-selling book laying a framework for modern HR and people operations. I'm excited to share the next evolution, the Redefining HR Accelerator. The Accelerator is a full platform to build, inspire, and support the next generation of people leaders, including cohort programs, courses, open source resources, and most importantly, community. Thanks to listeners like you, Redefining HR is now brought into a tire platform focused on building readiness for tomorrow's HR today. Learn more at redefininghr.com. And now, back to the show. And let's see, you know, I do want to actually mention for listeners. So I, uh, you know, I, I've done some work with iTech Media in the past. That's how I connected with Alan and the Harley and learned about their their culture and their business. So we do have that connection. And, and I want to I want to you know share, share that as transparency. But also I want that kind of informs the next question, which is, you know, I know for both you and Harley, you're incredibly passionate about culture and and culture as a defining force for the business. You know, having strong values that guide the organization's decision-making um, that kind of inform how people show up and what behaviors are rewarded. You know, in, in your mind, what does great culture look and feel like to you? I think in a word, 
belonging, inclusivity. It's a culture that everyone feels that they can show up in and to. So I, I'm a passionate believer that you can't create a culture, you can create an environment in which the culture will flourish. And then yeah. the actions, every single thing that you do helps to shape and create exactly what you're doing, how you're doing it, and ultimately the way that the culture springs up. So the things that you reward, the behaviors that you think are okay, the ones that you condone and say, no, you can't do that, or that's not the right thing to do, every action ultimately leads to the culture that you create. And the thing yeah. I love about iTech is we have a really, really strong culture, but a purposeful culture. We cultivate it every single day. We cultivate it through rituals, through what we'd call isms, the little things, the quirks, sometimes weird, those are just, well, we do things like that, but they help to cement the culture. If you think about the scaling journey that we are going on and that many startups are going on, you start out as a, a village where everyone knows each other. You probably leave all your doors open and your kids all know each other. Everyone knows everything that's going on. And then as you scale, you become more like a town and maybe people start locking their doors, but they still know most of the people. And then you become a city. And if you take, you know, if you take London or New York or somewhere, the truth is you won't, it's, it's impossible for you to know every single person. So right. the, the rituals are the things that then connect everybody together. And it's important to put as many of those rituals in place as possible. So a really simple example is, let's say that you and I are in the same organization. I don't know you. Um, there's, I don't know, there's 2000 people in the company. What I might know about you is you're in, I'm going to make some massive assertions about you now, but <laughs> let's say that you're in the skateboarding club. So not a huge leap. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go further. Uh, so <laughs> let's say that you're in the skateboarding club. I know three other people in the skateboarding club. So I think, okay, they can tell me a little bit more about Lars. You're also in the Catalan cooking club. And I'm like, wow, okay, so he likes he likes kind of cooking Spanish food. That's that's great. I'd like to, um, I wonder if there's anyone else in that same guild that I know. And then also, um, you're a member of the chess club. And just putting those things together, I start to build up a picture through kind of like special interest groups of the kind of person that you might be. And I probably know someone that knows you. So connecting people through that, if you imagine it as like a network of mini guilds is a bit like making mini villages across the business. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I, I think, uh, has, has the shift, cause I know you were, you know, you had remote employees before the pandemic, um, like a lot of businesses, you shifted to remote during the pandemic has the, the remote nature of the organization, changed any of your views or, or thoughts around culture and and how that is um how that is maintained how that is supported 
uh, in an environment where most people are not in a central location? Yes, inevitably it has. Our culture two years ago was predominantly office-based. That's where all of the cultural activities took place. When an all hands run, everyone sat on a bleacher and we all sat together and we shared um, a celebration. Everyone clapped when it was someone's birthday and so on and so forth. That was kind of old world, really. Post and I suppose during pandemic, we've shifted to a remote first hybrid combination. So what do I mean by that? We've still an office, so we've not gone remote first, let's kill off the offices. Some companies have done that, that's, that's cool, that works for them. For us, we see the office now plays a completely different role than it did before. So if my role is, I'm an engineer, so I'm coding, if I can do that just as easily at home, there's no point in me coming into the office. So it's about giving people compelling reasons to come into the office. And those for me are the, the you're back to the values, the vision, the rituals. So they're about collaboration. They're about um, a squad getting together or a tribe getting together. And the fact that people choose to come into the office means that they're doing something useful that means a group of people can get together. So the office becomes somewhere that you might brainstorm, you might recognize, you might do a retro, you might do something socially, but you're using the office in a very different way. So where we've already morphed to is we will definitely hire more people that work remotely. We've got people that work, we're in London, we're in Camden, but we have people that live in Edinburgh, we've people that live in Leeds, we've people that live in the south of Wales, and we've people all over the world, North, South America, that we won't see face to face that often. So evolving to a remote first, what I would describe as kind of room or Zoom type yeah. approach, either everyone is in the room or you level comms and even though it might be nine people all sat at their desk with a headset on on the same zoom call which to some people might sound crazy but i strongly strongly believe in that you're leveling the comms so the person who is dialing in from new york or from edinburgh or from cardiff or from wherever feels they're having exactly the same experience as everyone else on the call and that that's the real flick for us to be able to do. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you nailed a really important aspect of doing hybrid effectively, right? I mean, having, having a shared experience, and again, your, your rumor zoom analogy, I think is, uh, is spot on in terms of best practice. You, you want all of your employees, regardless of whether they're in an office or not, to be uh, to be leveled, to be experiencing things in the same way. And, and, and that, that, that forces us to kind of change our habits of, of how we used to think about things when we were co-located. And, um, you know, one of the things I think is really interesting about, you know, you and, and your role and kind of even, you know, 
actually stepping outside of your role is uh, uh, you are a father and that is not necessarily unique uh, as a business leader, but you are a father of eight, um, which is fairly unique. And, and I'm, I want to get a sense from you, you know, as a, as a dad, as an executive in a high growth organization, how do you, how do you balance your time? How do you, you know, kind of, uh, prioritize all the things in your life, which I know are important to you, uh, you know, when in, in that environment, particularly with, uh, you know, as you're looking in at this environment we're in now where, you know, we've, we've been home a lot. Um, we've, we've gotten more time with our families in that sense, but how, how do you balance the, the kind of demands of being executive and being a, a dad to eight children? So sometimes it still surprises me that I've eight children. That's the honest <laughs> truth. Um, if we look at COVID, from a point of view of spending time with your kids, it's been a, it's, it's been a boon. A, a, a really simple story, um, being, being a father of, I've eight children in total, but in terms of young children, I have a boy and a girl, twins of seven, and then I have a daughter of two and a half. And teaching the seven-year-olds to ride their bikes what would have happened ordinarily is I'd have been in the office every day. By the time I'm home, it would have been dark or probably too late to, to teach them to ride. So that would, tended, that would have tended to fall to the weekend. Because of COVID, it gave me the opportunity, instead of my daily commute, every morning, especially when the schools were closed, I take my um, twins out and teach them to ride their bikes. And now they're super proficient riding on roads, riding up and down hills and so on. So that's a, a small win for me that through COVID that helped. If you talk about how I balance it, I think balance is the operative word. You know, you can't, you can't do everything that you want to do with your kids. So you learn how to do things as efficiently and as effectively as you possibly can. So my daily routine will be, I'm up early in the morning, so I'm up at 6 a.m. every day. My son will be also up at 6 a.m. So we'll get time together in the morning and we'll have breakfast together and I'll leave, say, the house at 7.30. So we have an hour and a half together and it's great that he'll tell me all the things he's been doing at school and so on and so forth. When and when I finish work in the evening, I'll normally do story time, um, bits of homework, helping the kids with at the weekend, lots of homework, lots of time outdoors. It's, it's about balance. I love the amount of time that I get with my children. Would I love it to be even more? Yes, but I'm realistic about it as well. And it, it really is a balancing act between the two. But I think as a consequence of COVID, some of what would have been commuting time has actually been time that I've take my kids out for a walk, take them out for a bike ride or something like that. And that's been, that's been a boon. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate you sharing that. I, th I think it's going to be really interesting um, over time to see how the pandemic has impacted um, families in particular, I think for, for the ability for parents to be, um, spending as much time, you know, not commuting, like you said, not doing a lot of the things that maybe we did pre-pandemic uh, and having that extra family time, uh, it's going to be, I think it's going to be hard to transition away from that to an environment, especially for people in roles where 
they would have to go back to an office five days a week. And I think a lot of people aren't going to want to do that. So I think it's going to be, you know, really interesting. As we talked about, I think hybrid, you know, for those companies that had employees who were able to work remotely during the pandemic, hybrid is now your default. Uh, and that will continue to be even when it's safe to go back into an office for many, many companies, many more. And so I think for for employees and for parents specifically and caretakers who want to, uh, you know, prioritize that balance as the driving force in their life and their career, I think they'll have the opportunity to do so. So it's uh, it'll be really interesting to see kind of how that plays out over time, particularly over the next you know couple of years. Um, Alan, we're, we're winding down the podcast. I always end the show with a quick lightning round just to help the listeners get to know the guests a little bit more. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions. I'm going to try to keep your answer to around a sentence each. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. All right. So I'm, uh, I'm checking out your Spotify playlist. Uh, who will I learn are your top three artists? Nirvana, definitely. David Guetta. Um... Third would be Rihanna. Mm. All right. Uh, least favorite HR buzzword? In a word, policy. Pol- oh, uh, policy yeah. equals policing. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Um, what is your favorite HR function? Talent. So talent acquisition, but also talent growth. Got it. And you were, you know, you, you've, you've had a career in HR, and now you have a career as a COO. If you weren't doing either of those things, what would you be doing? It would be most likely one of two things, either in the military or a PT. Or it was the last one? A PT. What is a PT? A trainer? Yeah. Ah, okay. Trainer, yeah. Uh, and the last question for you, Alan, uh, who is one HR practitioner that you admire and why? So as a team, we had... A fireside chat, um, about 12 of us with this individual, and she's just outstanding. So it would be Claude Silver at VaynerMedia. I think someone that you know pretty well, Lance. Yeah, I do. And I will, uh, I, I will second that nomination. She's, uh, she's incredible. So, uh, well, Alan, thank you so much for coming on the show today, sharing your career journey and your work and your role. And I uh, really appreciate you helping the listeners Uh, you know, get to know you, but also getting to know more about what that transition to a COO role might look like. So thanks so much for making time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Lars. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.